Hello and welcome to Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love. I am a social psychologist and I research friendships that cross social divides. I'm recording this podcast at a time when many of you might be worrying that our world is getting more and more divided. Rifts within societies are widening, dialogue is dying, and we all seem to be stuck in ever more tightly sealed echo chambers. Well, my aim with this podcast is to show you that all is not lost. There is a lot that you and I can do to build bridges between those parts of society that feel increasingly far apart. In fact, many people around the world, and in really ingenious ways, are doing just that kind of bridge building already. This podcast features conversations with them. Today's episode is about a South African garden, how WhatsApp helped build a well, how to manage conflict during a drought, and how a single woman's grit and idealism can build a most unlikely community. Somebody suggested an elderly man to come and work with us, and I uh, took him on, and it didn't work because he started off by using derogatory language towards my close-up co-worker, and I said, we don't talk like that here. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't like that. First of all, I was a woman giving him instructions, and he didn't take to that, so he would definitely not work with me. Mm -hmm. And secondly, behind my back, he would say horrible things to Sishlalo. So I said to him, it's not working, please go. And that's the first time that my team realized that I was intolerant of that kind of thing and that we were here to respect one another yeah. and that their differences they needed to leave outside the gate and not bring it in. We were here to work together on a project that needed sharing of ideas. That was Paula Raubenheimer. Before we start I want to take a moment to share with you the context of the conversation that you're about to hear. Meeting Paula was true serendipity. In April 2019, I stayed in Stellenbosch in South Africa for a month to conduct research for my PhD. On a morning stroll around the town, I stumbled across a small music school that was holding an open day. The school is located on a quiet street away from Stellenbosch's commercial and touristic town centre and it is surrounded by a beautiful Victorian garden. Paula is the lead gardener. And when my husband joined me in South Africa later that month, she showed us the grounds and told us all about the garden's remarkable history. South Africa is a country with a rich and often painful past. The racialized discrimination, violence and segregation that was legislated under apartheid between 1948 and the early 1990s, but also earlier periods of colonialization, have left deep scars. South Africa is an incredible, diverse and culturally rich country. It is also marked by stark socioeconomic inequalities that affect everything, from access to basic amenities like electricity and running water, to education, health and, ultimately, life expectancies. South Africans like to invoke the rainbow nation, but life chances for many South Africans are still coded by skin colour and ethnicity. In her garden, Paula is mounting a small but impactful protest against the status quo by bringing together people who would otherwise probably never share in a project. This conversation is about just that, the garden and the fight for keeping it alive and everything and everyone that is growing within it. 
We recorded this conversation outside on a bench in this beautiful garden. There just wasn't really anywhere else for us to record at the time. Consider the soundscape atmospheric. Birds, sirens, the hustle and bustle of life unfolding within and outside of what I'd call Stellenbosch's secret oasis. It is also a slightly longer conversation than usual. Because Paula is a captivating storyteller, candid, generous and, I think, just brilliant. Please enjoy. Paula, thank you very much for joining me on the conversation. Where are we? So we're sitting in a garden that's about 120 years old. Probably in the 1600s and 1700s, this garden would have been farmland. And then in the 1900s, 1903, it got a building built on it and then became a, a, a garden. And it was gardened by absolute lovers of gardens. And it, they ended up with our children and left the garden in a trust so that it could be looked after. There were four or five Victorian gardens in Stellenbosch. This is one of them, and this is the one that has survived in its entirety. The rest has all been gobbled up by urbanisation. So we have this incredible patchwork of plants from all around the world, a vegetable garden, but also many, many flowers and bushes, many of them indigenous, but many also, like the Victorians like to do, collected from, from all over. You told me this incredible story of Victorian women smuggling bluebells in their bras from their journeys and then planting them into the ground because they liked them, they thought they were pretty. And mm. Yes, and it's, very, it's a very relaxed garden, very loose and flowy and, and not, not very pruned. And mm. it's, just, it's nice, it means that you can work with nature, you don't have to always fight it and try and control it and tame it. And yes. I like that kind of gardening where it, it kind of happens and you learn from nature rather than dominate it. Mm-hmm. So this garden is on the street in Stellenbosch called Hertie Street. That's right. And just opposite the entrance to the house that comes with the garden, just now a music school, we have old slave houses, at least that's what it says on the walls and over the doors. Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind those buildings and also the garden that is actually hidden away just behind them? So in the early 1800s, a German pastor came to South Africa and he bought a house from a woman called, I think she was called Anki Onkreit. Mm-hmm. Now, by the sound of that name, you would realize that she was a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And Onkreit is, is the word for a weed. Yeah, Onkraut. Hey, mm-hmm. yeah. So she had built a whole row of houses. They were built by a woman. The Reverend Hahn bought these little houses from her over time as, she, as he made a little bit of money and then housed the released slaves that were then released from the aristocrat in Stellenbosch. They obviously had no connections and no social standing and no money, and they gardened the back garden, which is 250 years plus minus. And the produce that they were able to produce there, they were able to sell Mm -hmm. and either pay him a little bit of rent or only use it for for their upkeep. Um, And then over time, they found their position in in society here and the houses then became um, occupied by artists and musicians and it was rent control which means that there was very little money put Mm -hmm. into the houses Mm -hmm. and they became a little bit run down 
And then when Dorothy died, uh, Dorothy and Charles were the initial people that came here. Dorothy is her grandfather's Reverend Hahn. So Dorothy is German and she married an Englishman between the two wars, which is again a bridging of different people. They didn't have children and she inherited 12 houses and two massive gardens. And again, that inheritance, women didn't inherit things. It was always left to men to inherit because they were sort of the head of the family. Mm. So for me, those two narratives make it very unusual in that, well, three, that a a, a woman of colour built a whole lot of houses, that an Englishman and a a German married in between the two wars, and that a woman inherited an enormous amount of property. And then the Group Area Act of 1950 meant that this area of Stellenbosch was becoming a whites-only area. Mm. What happened to the houses then and the garden that had been looked after by the the descendants of the freed slaves? Well, it appears as if the tenants really didn't show any interest in the gardens and that the garden at the back, which I call the market garden, because that's what it was, it it produced produce for a market, the garden went to pot, basically. I think people dabbled in it and tried to keep it going, but by the time I started three years ago, it was a complete and utter mess, overwhelmingly so. So it's really nice to see all the lovely tenants that have moved in and they're all very very diverse people but all have kind of thread of very cultured and very interested in their environment and we've created the most amazing community mm-hmm. yeah and i want to talk to you about that in a moment mm. but you just mentioned that you started three years ago getting involved with the gardening here you're the resident gardener you are not a gardener by training you're an occupational mm. therapist yeah. tell me how you became involved in this the little house that you're looking at, Angelica, is um, is where we stay, and there's a huge window where I would sit um, and work on my computer, and I would sit there and look out of the window and watch all the nonsense that was happening in this garden. People were climbing over the wall and stealing some of the rare plants, and then Pitman, who is my mentor, would come and place 30 roses in the garden right in front of me, and then the following day, the garden service would come and take them away and I would look and go, okay, why is that happening? Mm. And then Sishlalu, who is my co-worker, would come the following day, look, being instructed that there are roses to plant mm. and walk around flabbergasted because they wouldn't be there. Yeah. And eventually I plucked up the courage and I found out who the trustees were because I'm just a tenant. And I said, are you aware of what's going on? I can't keep quiet anymore. And they said, no, we haven't got a clue really. Um, and then they said, would you like to be the gardener? I said, my word, I know nothing about gardens. I mean, I've dabbled in gardening, but I can't tell you the names of things and I don't know enough to really... Con- this is an, a hectare of garden. Mm-hmm. So I said, I would do it if you gave me a mentor, somebody mm-hmm. who would, would nurture me through this process. And that's how Pitman Dinner came about. He's a well-known South African gardener. And he would come on a Sunday for two or three hours and he's like hyperactive and would run around and I would just have to absorb all of this. Yeah. And it was very overwhelming in the beginning and I thought I'll never be able to do this. You have told me about so many various hard tasks that needed to be done in order to actually start being able to appreciate the gardeners as a relatively blank slate and to recreate some of its charm. One of the things that many people will associate with Cape Town and the Cape region is the recent very critical water shortages that you had mm. in this region last year. And of course, a garden requires an incredible amount of water. 
I would like you to take us through the, what it took for you to actually be able to take these incredibly rare, precious plants through that drought and, and the obstacles you faced in the meantime along the way. I think it's the first time that I felt like a farmer yeah. that was looking over his land or her land and saying the sheep are dying and I can't do anything about it. It was very terrifying. For, I've never experienced anything like that and I felt a sense of responsibility towards all these plants and I thought I've just got to make a plan. I mean I can't, I can't stand here and watch things die. It just felt wrong. But I think what I also want to say in conjunction with this is that what, what amazed me about that whole experience that we had as, as Western Cape and Cape Tonians is that we all pulled together in, in adverse situations. Mm -hmm. There was obviously a lot of bitching and moaning, which I think human beings do naturally, but at the end of the day, everybody mucked in and helped one another, and it created an incredible bond amongst people. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of thing is really good for us because it makes us humble and it makes us realize that there is that possibility that you can open your tap and no water will come out. Yeah. And uh, people were standing in your garden sobbing, you said, because yes. their plants were dying, they were going with incredible scarcity. And you had, through your activism and, and passion for this project, been able to get privileged water access. What did you do in order to make mm. that happen? So we have a system in uh, Stellenbosch that was laid out in the 1600s. In a, it's a water system called Leivater. Mm -hmm. Lay is to lead and water is obviously the same as water. So the Leivater was put in place to feed all the farmland that was in Stellenbosch in the early 1600s. Uh, it still runs through the, the town and it is a heritage site and it runs right past our property here. So normally it was decided in the High Court to start the Leivater from the 15th of December until the 15th of April, but with climate change, it could basically start on the 15th of October, if not you September, could do with it. Yeah. but it, it cannot be changed because it was decided in the High Court and it's not that easy to change mm -hmm. it. And so it wasn't a matter of just going and, and getting water. I then went to the bailiffs and you make friends with bailiffs in a, in a town where there is lay water because they your <laughs> they your friends. What's that so a water bailiff is somebody who decides where water goes. Oh. There's a joke in Stellenbosch that it's not called lay water, it's called baklay water. Baklay means to fight. So people fight over water. They really do fight over water. They steal one another's water and it becomes quite an issue. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I went to the, the bailiffs and I said, come and look at the garden because mm -hmm. I want you to see that it is a historic garden that people of color and pe white people have planted for so long. People have dug holes and put effort into this. You yeah. can't let it die. They were all completely stunned and told me that and they mostly men of color, they told me that all their grandparents had lived in the street and there was an enormous connection to yeah. this garden. And then I said to them, we need to find a way to get water here. So we took the main furrow where the, where the lay water is and we built it up by 30 centimeters to allow the volume to come through much quicker into the garden. Now that is pretty unusual because it's a heritage site and you can't fiddle with it. But my, my begging and relentless nagging literally got them to the point where they said, we will help you. Mm -hmm. Now, most houses that have a lay-water facility are allowed about 20 minutes. They fill a dam and then they irrigate by sprinkler system. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, 
we don't have that. We've got furrows running through the garden and we use a flood irrigation system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 20 minutes would be a joke in a garden <laughs> like this. Absolutely. You say it takes five hours. It takes more. me five hours to do it. So what happens on the 15th of December is they, they switch pumps on at the river. Prior to the 15th of December, nobody really takes water except me. <laughs> and they know about it and it, it takes me a whole day to flood irrigator because of course the pumps are not on and it's the water's much lower yeah. but by building up the furrow it helped to push the volume up to get it into mm -hmm. the garden and so we are very fortunate in that i can even in the middle of winter i'll go and if it really looks like we haven't had rain i can irrigate this and this created in itself a kind of war amongst people in that they said well you know why do you have preferential treatment here? And I said, you need to come and have a look to understand that. Um, and then when people come here, there's a lot of conflict in their hearts because, first of all, they're sitting with a garden that's dying. Mm -hmm. They've put a lot of money and effort into it. And then they come here and there's this lush oasis in the middle of this dry environment. And it created a lot of animosity initially. And then I said to them, well, look, bring me what you are worried about and I will plant it here yeah. and if you want it back in a few years time it is yours yeah. and that's how we started building up a relationship between the stressed gardeners and myself yeah and I think that is a, a sort of theme that runs through your work here more generally speaking as well that element of community we have a shared stake in this you're welcome this is not mine this is ours this is part of a community in the way it is almost a space for people to connect to each other, work with each other. And the passion in your voice, I think, makes it so clear that there's more to this garden than the plants. You work with a, a wide variety of people here, a diverse group of mostly men and some women as well, who help you garden. Can you say a little bit more about that, the workers you work with, their stories and the circumstances that have brought them here? I think one of the bonuses about why it is, is working well and why it fell into place is that I am not a gardener, I'm mm -hmm. an occupational therapist. So I've had 25 years of working with patients of all walks of life. Yeah. So I really understand human beings. I've seen them suffer, I've had to you know, work on their bodies to rehabilitate them and this is really the same. It's just a rehabilitation of a body. And whoever comes into contact with this really starts feeling a sense of responsibility so Sishlalo, who is a closer man, um, he was here before me um, and he has uh, done a course in gardening. So he actually knows a lot more than I do and he goes around teaching me, which is wonderful. And then Andre, who is at the moment in the other garden, is a, a, a um, builder by profession. Mm -hmm. He came to the garden gate for a whole month asking me for a job and I had to motivate for a salary from the trust for him. And that made me realize this man is tenacious and hardworking. And then I gave him probably one of the toughest jobs. He had to build a, what I call it, Andre's Highway. <laughs> we give things very funny names here. It's about a meter of space along an electric fence, which he has to then maintain. And it, he had to build a path with stones. So he carried buckets of stones and laid out this path. Mm -hmm. It took him a month. And I realized this man had some qualities to him that was actually most unusual. So the two of them are so diverse, you would normally not put them in the same team. But I love diversity in a team because it means that you can learn from one another, that you can teach one another things, um, and that you don't have to be friends. 
Whereas if you've got a team that are all very similar, mm-hmm. you kind of tend to go, oh, well, we all know the same, so why should we share? Mm. Why should we teach one another? Because we assume a common knowledge. That's right. You also, in a way, and this sounds, <laughs> maybe this is my German blood, you don't have people standing around talking all the time because they are friends. You have somebody, you have people who have a common interest mm-hmm. and can see that mm-hmm. a job needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so they work extremely hard. So the shared identity is mm-hmm. developed around the task rather than around language or yes. cultural roots. It's very interesting you say that. And I think it's something that some some listeners will, might find a bit icky because they're not familiar with the challenges of living in such an incredibly diverse community as, as is the Cape region, which mm. brings together people with very different socioeconomic, cultural, historical backgrounds, stories, a whole range of skin colors and religions and upbringings. It's it's challenging. And for me, coming from an outside and being in Stellenbosch for a month, mostly observing um, with my very naive perspective, is that there, even though it's such a diverse community, different areas of life still happen next to each other rather than integrated with Mm. one another and so your garden has become an interesting space for people to work hand in hand who might otherwise Mm. live quite parallel lives they would definitely live parallel lives and one of the things that i can remember is somebody suggested an elderly man to come and work with us he he was looking for work and i uh, took him on and it didn't work because he started off by using derogatory language towards my close-up um, co-worker and I said we don't talk like that mm-hmm. yeah uh, he didn't like that first of all I was a woman giving him instructions and he didn't take to that so he would definitely not work with me mm-hmm. and secondly behind my back he would, would say horrible things to to um, to Sishlalo. so I said to him it's not working please don't go um, and that's the first time that my team realized that I was intolerant of that kind of thing and that we were here to respect one another and that their differences they needed to leave outside the gate and not bring it in. We were here to work together on a project that needed immense hard work and sharing of ideas and it's actually remarkable how how well they get on with one another Mm. now. Mm -hmm. Where do they live? So Shishlala lives in a, a township right here in Stellenbosch called uh, Kayamandi mm-hmm. and he is a smart man. You know, I can give him 20 instructions first thing in the morning. We, we walk around the garden with a cup of coffee and then we decide what needs to be done for the day and we, we, I don't delegate. I say to them who wants to do what and they even know what I'm capable of doing now. So they will go, okay, well, Paula, you can do this and we'll do that. There's no, you know, I'm not given a title. I'm a co-worker. I don't have any airs and graces and they know what I can do. I mean, I'm going to be 60 next year, so there are things that I can't do. So it's a very nice way of managing a team rather than dominating and telling them what to do. Um, and then Andre has a, a very sad history in that he comes from immense poverty. He lives in Plutusville, which is the equivalent of a brown township um, in Stellenbosch. And, and they are the marginalised people, the ones that have really been, that have suffered in Stellenbosch. What um, is Well, they're brown people. We call them coloured people, mm-hmm. which I, I hate that, that word. But they it's very pe- tainted in the, it's in the very, UK as it well. Is, but it, it is. is what is commonly used here in, in South Africa. Indeed. So I try to not say the word, but they are known as the coloured people here 
mixed race. Mm -hmm. And they were there initially, the, the slaves in Stellenbosch. And most of them come from the released slaves. And so they've had to find a way. And Andre's home circumstances are very, very sad in that his wife died of breast cancer, leaving him with two children. And like many men who are left in that kind of situation, he unraveled. And he lives in a little shack with his family and his his mother-in-law um, behind neighbor's house. And I discovered recently when he went, he got TB that he was sleeping on the floor, mm. on rags on the floor. So we all rallied together and got him a bed. And he was off for three months and he got incredibly thin from TB. When I started this job, I decided that I was going to feed them. You know, you can't do a day's labor without a plate of food somewhere along the line. Um, so at lunchtime, Carl and I make a proper plate of food, cooked food. A lot of people go, you spoil them. I go, well, what the hell, why not, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> they deserve to be spoiled. <laughs> yes, precisely. And that feeding process makes people really close. Mm -hmm. Because I nip off a half an hour while they're doing things and I go and make a plate of food. And it can be a simple thing like eggs from the chickens that we've got mm -hmm. here um, and I know that's a good source of protein but I just it feels good to be able to feed people because then you realize they have a sense of belonging as well yeah. so the two of them are very very close to my heart and and as much as I can yell at them sometimes we definitely really care about one another well you describe yourself as a can-do woman who <laughs> likes to blow things up <laughs> so I'm not surprised that you you find good words to work with them you have a lot of produce growing in this garden, in this Victorian very pretty garden, as well as in what will one day become the market garden again. We tried some tomatoes that were incredible. Do you um, use some of the, the produce in your cooking? Definitely. The food is basically used in our kitchen and then we have a WhatsApp group in the street and if we've got any excess it first goes to the gardeners and then if there's no more excess, we put it on the WhatsApp group and we ask our neighbours who are very close to us whether they, they want sweet potatoes or mm. whatever is left over. That WhatsApp group seems to have produced some incredible community work as well because you told me that, for example, at some point you needed to dig a well. Tell me about that because that seems sounds like a project that brought together your workers, your, your team as well as your neighbours in a quite unexpected way maybe. Maybe I should start with my neighbours. There are, I think it's about 10 houses in the street. And the people that stay in the houses are, are mostly academics mm -hmm. and people who are actually well known in South Africa, particularly in the Afrikaans culture, uh, drama, poetry, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I always assumed that because they were so similar, that they were closely knitted and well known to one another. But in fact, in my stupidity, I was completely wrong. They would literally nod at one another and kind of walk down the street. And here I came like a bull in a china shop going like, okay, let's come, <laughs> you know, and not knowing that they were in effect really quite strangers to one another. And the shed um, where the gardeners have their coffee became a, an area where we socialized together, slowly but surely. Uh, you know, it's one thing that I never knew that in South Africa in particular, we kind of jump in our cars and from our cars we go and do whatever and then we're back in our cars and then we drive into the garage and then we're back in the house and there is no sense of identity out on the street. Um, and that's where I realised everybody's out on the street, going to the shops, going to a coffee shop, whatever. Um, and so I made sure that I spent a lot of time on the street 
Um, and I then got to know not only the neighbours, but the vagrants and the those that get up to nonsense. And, and in the process, we established a car guard that looks after the street and keeps an eye on everybody. And we've established a, a man that sleeps rough who does our outside garden um, and gets plants from, from my garden. But the well was that time that we had that drought that became critical to get some holding cell for water. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we, when you're desperate, you do stupid things. So we literally decided where to put the well. It's in the lowest part of the garden. There's reed there to indicate that there would be water. And we started digging the well, the three of us. Andre is phenomenally strong, and so he did the bulk of it. But I would climb in there every now and again when he fatigued, and I would do it myself and realise it. This is a hell of a hard work. You realise that Stillmarsh was a riverbed millions of years ago, uh, a river, and the, and the, the riverbed has got these huge round boulders. Mm. Um, and so we had a block and tackle that we could bring the stone up with, but some of them were just too big. You know, you'd get them to the lip and then need a whole lot of people to manoeuvre it out onto the, the edge. Um, and then I would go onto the WhatsApp group and photograph this hole with this huge boulder, and I'd say, anybody willing to come and help for an hour and these people that live in these houses that write soapies for television or do massive um, direction of plays would all arrive in the weirdest of outfits because you know they just gotten up from their laptops precisely <laughs> and they would come and help and we would laugh and scream and you know cause crack jokes while we took this huge boulder out um, and then they would all sort of wipe their foreheads and go, that was so amazing. And off they would go back to their computers. Yeah. And so they would then come, whenever they visit, they'd go down and see, okay, how far, how deep is the well now? And how come you haven't come across any nice big boulders? Because I want to come and do another one, you know. Ah, mm-hmm. Anyway, we got to three meters, having gone through a meter of, of clay. And then I kind of threw in the tile and I realized we had to do seven meters of clay because they'd done a borehole. 10 meters away and I could see by the soil samples what we were going to go through and 7 meters of clay is just it's impossible it's crippling crippling. we couldn't do it so it is used as a tank effectively Mm -hmm. Um, and when I flood irrigate it fills up and then I have water to to help stress plants until a week later when I do flood irrigation again so we've talked about the engagement of your neighbors and you also mentioned the homeless guy living out on the street I think you gave him was he the guy who you gave a high-vis? So, so we've, got two, we've got two people in the street that are quite interesting. There's uh, the guy with the high-vis vest is, is John Plykis. He has a criminal record. And he basically arrived here and showed me that he was tenacious and that he wanted to change his ways. He has epilepsy as well. He's he has okay. very bad epilepsy. So I got him to the clinic. He's on medication, but he still weekends unravels and takes drinks too much and then on Monday he often has a fit and I've told him you can't the combination is fatal but I mean you know life's tough so mm. the, the bottle is, uh, is is solace and he has the last three years literally transformed from this scarred really frightened man to a man who feels a sense of belonging in the street mm-hmm. a man who will call me from the gate and say there's a suspect character they're looking into the windows of cars um, and I would go out and his judgment would be completely correct and I would let the security company know nearby that they must come and help us and we would get rid of the area was really shocking in the beginning 
Um, so, so John is very much part of the community and we all give him a bit of money at the end of the week. He parks cars and people pay him um, if they want to and sometimes they abuse him because they're used to that kind of thing and he is very, very kind to them and I, I, it makes me angry. Yeah. I want to sometimes go out and crap on everybody yeah. uh, and we've now given him a vest that says Herta Street Community Project, please support and whenever the law enforcement come past, they try and chase him away. He comes and calls me and he says, Paula, they don't understand. And they, slowly but surely, law enforcement is now understanding that we want him here. Mm-hmm. We have decided mm-hmm. that he's part he of our street. He has a role to play here. And you say that these sort of small investments in individual people on the street has actually changed the feel and the face of the community more widely. You say you clean up people's turds that they leave and you pick Absolutely. up the rubbish. and yeah. What does this relatively simple act do to the wider feel of this part of town? Well, this part of town um, has kind of fallen off the map in a way, in a strange way. It doesn't really fall into the tourist area. So we would have bins in the street that would never be cleared. And I would go to the municipality and say, well, why don't you ever clean our bins? Um, you know, so simple things like that. So eventually I would carry the bins away and go and I'd put them somewhere else. Um, and then it would reduce the amount of garbage that people would throw down because somehow when there's a bin you kind of miss the bin whereas now there's no bin you kind of go okay I'm going to carry it with you so we reduced the the street garbage considerably by just taking the obvious away and saying okay we're not going to give you the a bin. Let's see what you do with your with your garbage. Yeah. My psychology students will find that very interesting because it's a fascinating real life example of changing perceived norms in an area on a street. Yes. But you also mentioned when you first took me through your garden that there is still delinquent behaviour. People climbing over the wall, stealing plants. Just last week you had your two cannabis plants stolen. Mm. They mysteriously disappeared. But you also say that there is a derelict house right next door to what will then become the, the market garden where people climb over the wall and recently stole some very valuable property of yours. Yes, that garden, there's a garage attached to it and a whole lot of material was stored in boxes in that garage and I went through all of that material. It was basically about 250-year-old material from the Reverend Hahn and the communication between him and various people. Letters, um, and, letters and photographs. And, and, and somebody basically broke into that garage and pilfered all that material away, which left me devastated because I knew that it was a bit of a history that we've lost. So, you know, we, we are chronically dealing with security problems. We are dealing with vagrancy. There has massive inequality in this town. There's yeah. the, of the most affluent people in, in South Africa that live here. Yeah, you told me that. So, there are students here driving cars that their professors wouldn't be able to afford. There are people absolutely. lying in the midday heat, uh, unconscious of meth and mm-hmm. hunger, but then people stepping over them who are on their way to the real estate in order to buy their second home. So right. it's a really odd juxtaposition of the extremes of this country within this town and for me you know you can either bitch and moan about it and turn your back on it Mm. or you can go okay well I've got to embrace this and try and make it better I'm a problem solver I mean for me I just don't walk away from problems and sometimes they make me pretty desperate I mean I can I can tell you that the Johnman house has a that's the music school that's the music school didn't have electric fencing around it and every morning I would have to go and first of all ask the vagrants to get off the strips and then I would have to pick up all the feces and the old food and the dirty clothes and and put that in the rubbish bin and I kind of cracked a joke and said you know the day that I have to pick up a fetus is the day that I really leave 
And slowly but surely, people started getting to know me and there were times that I had a lot of aggression on the road, but on the whole, the vagrants know me now and they know that I'm not here to cause trouble. I must say, the derelict house next to the market garden is very frightening in that the people that are there are the, the really desperate. And that problem is, I, that's unsurmountable. You know, I feel like we need a, a Trump war at this point because I can't work in that garden. You need to build a wall. Yes. It's the yeah. first time I felt like that. Yes. I've never wanted to build a wall between people. Yeah, but this, this is, is the yeah. first time where the problem just feels too big. This is a very unfamiliar sight for North and Western Europeans who come to South Africa and find every valuable property fenced off, mm. even with an electric fence. But I think you make a very um, nuanced point on protecting a place that actually brings people together from those who want to destroy it. From an outsider's point of view, a lush and beautiful garden like this will look like a place where there is money. But you have told me about how much it takes, how much guts and how much creativity it takes you to see through a project that requires funds that you simply don't have. And the sometimes desperate and dangerous means that you go to in order to, say, fell some trees. We had to fell about 10 trees, poplars that were about 30, 40 years old. Mm. They were on the boundary. The boundary, there was no fence. And so people were coming in and helping themselves to a whole lot of things. So we had to put a fence up. And that required the boundary to be cleared of mm -hmm. any huge vegetation. To fell a tree in South Africa properly is about seven and a half thousand rand, which we just didn't have. And that's about 370 pounds. Yes, we just didn't have it. So I put the word out um, and I said to people, send me a guy with a chainsaw and some knowledge who's prepared to do it for much less. Um, and this guy arrived, very gun-ho. I mean, he was just revving his chainsaw all the time. And I thought, okay, there are some rules here. We Safety is number one. Mm -hmm. I do not want to have anybody injured and I don't want property damage. And we felled seven out of the nine trees, mm -hmm. literally by cutting yeah. a wedge at the bottom like you would see them do in a forest mm. and then drop this huge tree. I mean, what did they, you told me? Um, well, uh, 25 meters tall. Yeah, if not more than that. Yeah. Um, and they would land with an, an enormous shudder and the ground would shake um, and they would sort of lick their finger and say, well, the wind is blowing this direction, so we think it's going to fall in that direction. And this is something I love about Africa is because we don't have money and we don't necessarily have the sophistication or the knowledge, but we've got people who are prepared to try something. Yeah. They won't walk away and say, well, look, I'm, it's just not my kind of cup of tea. Mm. They will go, you know what, if I'm going to get some money for this, I'm going to try my best. Yeah. And basically, Owen felled these trees and one fell into the garden, didn't cause any damage. And then the rest fell really where they should have fallen. And the last two, I chickened out, we've subsequently felled the one and that cost us a lot of money. And I'm sitting with a silky oak that really needs to be taken out. And I just don't have the money. Yeah. So, you know, I have to make peace with the fact that there's mm. a lot that I can't do. Mm. The purchase of a chainsaw or the purchase of a gardening equipment, paying your workers fairly, and even investing in something like a wall around the chaos garden so that you have the safety to actually rebuild it 
takes money that isn't just there only because this is only because this place has a a white resident gardener and looks posh and Victorian doesn't mean that it is well funded mm. so if people want to help what could they do what is your thinking on potential ways to help mm. fund this I've spent a lot of time on that simply because I think a garden that belongs to people should generate money it shouldn't be a bottomless pit. One of the tenants in the street is a florist. He's well known in South Africa and he does a lot of huge weddings. Um, and we have built up a relationship where he comes and forages in our garden and picks as much as we can give him. And, and the hydrangeas in, in this garden make a lot of money. So in his contribution has been able to allow me to buy a leaf blower and a hedge cutter and you know equipment that I would normally not be able to do and have to rely on co-workers to do, which is time consuming. So it, it kind of catapulted us a little bit in terms of saving time. Um, and then we've had open gardens where people have come in and paid money to come and have a look at the place. Slowly but surely we're trying to get people to realize that because it's theirs, they should financially contribute to it. It shouldn't be left to a, a small handful of people to do. Mm -hmm. We haven't got to the point where we've, we've thought bigger than that. I think I would love for you and for us to do something to think bigger about this. And I think we, we both agreed that we would like to encourage people to send you an email if they're interested and to go onto your Instagram account and have a look at it themselves. So they can send an email to paula at bb-books.co.za and also go on the website of the trust, the johnmanmusiccenter.co.za forward slash garden. And then of course there is your wonderful Instagram page at Stellenbosch. I've realized in the past that, that people contribute financially to something if they know that it is something tangible. Yeah. And for me, it also is easier to ask for money if I say, oh, you know what, we could do with a chainsaw. At the moment, we could do with a chainsaw. It's hard to see Andre saw through a huge log um, knowing that a chainsaw does it in two minutes. Yeah. But they are very, very expensive. So that's my next thing that I want to try and try and earn money, plus that silky oak that I have to chop down, yeah. which is seven and a half thousand right? It's very nice to be able to contribute to something knowing that it's going to go to something very tangible that makes a difference to the people and the garden, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you so Thank much for you. joining me on the conversation, Paula. Angelica, it was my pleasure. I've recently been in touch with Paula and sadly learned that since we recorded this episode, Paula and her husband have left Stellenbosch in the garden on Hurt Street. I know that Paula's departure will have meant a huge loss to all the people in and around the garden whose lives she touched. And she told me that, unfortunately, the community garden as it once was is no more. And so I wanted you to know that you won't be able to find the Johnman Trust Instagram account that Paula mentioned in our conversation and nor is there any obvious way of contributing to the upkeep of the garden. All that being said, I'm incredibly grateful to have met Paula and to have been able to witness her work in the community when it was, quite literally, in full bloom. So I invite you to consider this conversation something of a time capsule. The world and Paula's world has changed considerably since our conversation, but nevertheless, the work she did there, the community she built and the many lives she affected are undeniable and worth capturing in this episode. 
If you head to angelicalove.com forward slash podcast, you can find out how to follow Paula's work today and even see a few pictures of the garden. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'm sure Paula would love to hear from you. For now, thank you so much for listening.